Now, the point is this, and this is a serious point in the philosophy of religion, which St. Augustine already saw, but it absolutely bears repeating. When you tell me it makes no difference what we pray to, whether you call it God or Baal or Ram or Christ or Krishna or Shiva, and this is the basis of ecumenism, ecumenism, and it's bad enough that ecumenism is supposed to include all Christians and then all Jews, but why not all Hindus? Why not all, why not all Buddhists? Why not everybody? I mean, I hear that certain cathedrals are being let out to strange cults with strange uh, voodoo gods. Yeah, but at least they're on their knees. They're burning incense. They're integrated. But here's the point, dear friends. There are certain names which all point to the true God. We use G-O-D. And the Western religions, I mean, the, the French would say Dieu, the Italians would say Dio, the Italians would say Dio, and so on. So there are about 200 names in Western languages, all of which translate and mean the one true God. So to the Jewish Yahweh, to the extent that it at least points to the divinity, is accurate. And we, whenever we address the true God, we summon him, we praise him, we sacrifice before him, and so on. Now, there are other names which are mere empty sounds. You can create a religion. Oh, I don't even know if you need a license in this country. But in America, I mean, just apply it. I am now Dr. Mara and my, my newest religion. And I can say we're all going to worship Amma. And everybody come in. They'll worship anything. And we'll get tax exemption, by the way. You know, I mean, income tax exempt. And I'll stir you up about um, and everybody's going to say um, praise you, and um, bless you. And, and people are going to say, oh, how, how fulfilled I am when I hear the preacher, when I hear Reverend Mara, that I'm so filled with um. Right? Now, if I think I've chosen a nonsense word, but somebody will tell me it's really a cultic word for some devil worship, but there are certain words which are mere nonsense. They're empty sounds. And it's hard to prove that because I say God, and God is invisible. I say Am, and I claim God doesn't, uh, Am doesn't exist. But how do you distinguish something invisible, which does exist, from something non-existent? Both are invisible. It's extremely difficult, but I want you to get the concept clear. That if, dear friends, there is this supreme being, eternal God, who has a name, who has revealed his name, if he has even revealed his will, well then when we call upon him in truth, we establish a true liaison, a true union between the creature and the creator. If, on the other hand, I call upon a false name, um, which corresponds to no reality, I'm calling upon an empty sound. St. Augustine noted this in the Confessions. In Book 4, he tells us that he had a dear male friend. He was about 16 at the time, and he had this marvelous friend that he did everything with him. And sometimes they fooled around in a bad way, but most of the time it was wholesome. With literature, music, uh, sports, nature, uh, philosophy, everything. And the friend died. And in these days, Augustine did not believe in God. He had vague memories that Monica had given them a little catechetics. When he, he didn't get it at the parish center, but his mother. 
uh, give him a little catechetic. And he had heard the name God, he had heard the name Jesus Christ, but he, but he had all kinds of wrong notions about what God is. He thought God was a huge hunk of matter. So he said, my entire life was shattered when this dear young man died. And, and if someone said, my soul hope in the Lord, my soul rightly responded with despair because I hoped in a phantom. In other words, the word God, the word Lord, instead of standing for the true God, was as empty a sound for St. Augustine as um. So someone says, oh, don't worry, Augustine, um will protect you. And it in no way consoled him, because there is no um. So he had to bear this terrible burden of grief and loneliness, because he knew he should have called upon a superior being who could have helped him. He did not know the name because he did not believe in the reality of the superior being, and he called upon empty words. An empty word. I know the psychologist will think that you're fulfilled, because you're genuflecting, you're putting money in the collection basket, you're, you're incensing things, but you're empty. God is not mocked. Reality is not mocked. Your soul knows when it's fed spiritual food, as opposed to when it's fed poison, or when it's fed nothing, fluffy nothing. Now, but that's not so, that's not the worst of the matter. There is a still other names. I say some names all translate God. Other names are mere empty sounds. But still other names point to realities which are evil. And we, if maybe you don't take this seriously, the satanic cults do. They take seriously who the devil is. They know the devil's name. They worship the devil. And dear friends, they call upon this... The, if you, you, I know people think it's very funny to have a Ouija board and all of this magic. When I studied catechism, that was taught to be a sin against the first commandment. Magic, the occult, witchcraft, and all that. And we still, though, had Halloween. It was cute to dress up like a witch. But in those days, it was somewhat innocent. But it's no longer innocent. And there's real attempts at magic. And what my fear is, not that they're appealing to empty names. Would that they were empty names. They've got the real name of the devil. And the devil listens. The devil will eventually swindle you. But he'll pay off the first few times. So please pay attention to the satanic cult, uh, these journalistic accounts of them. They have more than even probability of being true and verified because the devil exists and he goes about trying to deceive and, 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 and cripple those seeking whom he may devour, as St. Peter says. We have all of these... Uh, 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 C.S. Lewis has an article about prayer and works and all that, and Lewis shows how powerful prayer is, real prayer. It's one thing, if I want to do something natural, if I want to heat up water, I put a fire under it, and I know nature will be obedient, and the fire will come. If I want my neighbor to have bad luck, and I pray to God that God strike him dead, I mean, God has the power to strike him dead. And as C.S. Lewis said, prayer is so powerful that God will never automatically answer it. He's going to say, wait a minute, I'll listen to it. 
But when you ask me with prayer, which can be efficacious to strike your neighbor dead, I'm not going to listen to it. Or maybe I will. There might be times when God will approve the prayer that the neighbor be struck dead, as in the Old Testament time. But prayer is mightily powerful, and also when one has these obscene prayers to the underworld, obscene sacrifices in every sense of the word, they are powerful. That will happen. All these sacrifices, incantations, and so on, that does summon these diabolical spirits to destroy so many souls and so much innocence. This makes all the difference. Now, let me end up, therefore, with a little summation of this, because it's the key to everything I've said so far. The two main points are, we have different ways of recruiting people, pressure, no freedom versus attractiveness and freedom. And secondly, it makes all the difference whether you live in the truth and, and respond to the true God, or whether you summon devils or empty names. That we have to say the true God as revealed in Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ is our destiny. He is our food. He is our lover. He is our beloved. This is what the Catholics have always believed. And this is, why, this is what's so magnificent about those prayers still left in the Holy Mass. When you think of the Gloria, two solus sanctus, two solus altissimus, that we in a humble position look upon the God-man mediating us to God and we say, you alone are worthy of love and, uh, and adoration and enthusiasm, and zeal, and everything else, because you are the splendid being, and you are good, and you are our good, and you are our destiny. And this is the part of the great joy of the Christian when he's faced with the true God, not with a cult, not with some hero of a cult. We say that God alone deserves praise, and worship, and sacrifice, and it's an abomination that anyone should sacrifice even a lamb, even a chicken, to a false god. That is against the first commandment. And that they sacrifice to Satan is an unspeakable sacrilege. We say that God alone can rejoice us. God alone can fulfill us. These empty fictions can do nothing, and these evil spirits they do much more than starve us. They usually poison us and destroy us. And what's very important, they dishonor the true God. That's why we ought not to be serene saying, well, the kids are worshiping Satan there, and they're worshiping Krishna there, and they're having an affair there in which some son God is worshiped. But isn't it wonderful in this pluralistic society we're all worshiping? No. If God really exists, God is dishonored by false worship. Even among people in good faith, I don't say we have to blow them up with a, with a car bomb, but we ought to instruct them. We ought not to be happy that everybody's having his own relevant uh, relationship to what he thinks is the absolute thing. Is there no truth? Is there no true God? The end point, therefore, is this, and I've already anticipated this, that my, my third point would be depending on whether someone is in a genuine religious order or a cult, 
will depend on whether this person is at peace and happy or not. If you live in the truth, if you are in a genuine religious order, your freedom is respected, you are in touch with the fountain of truth, of love, you communicate with the all-good, all-knowing God, and it is a great blessing to you, and your parents should understand it to be that, that you are uh, espoused to Christ. If you are in a cult, your freedom has been compromised, your personality ruined, destroyed, you are under every kind of pressure, you're wretched, and you'll be destroyed psychologically. You're going to come out glazed, looking as if you've been in some sort of a drug scene, and you need not have taken any drug. You're psychologically drugged. There's one final point which I merely mentioned, and this is bad rhetoric. One should not mention a new point, but it, it's a good way to keep us thinking about this. Do you realize how difficult this problem is about distinguishing cults from religious orders and the final point is this. It's hard enough for Catholics to make the difference. Do you think the law can make the difference? That Why bring, whenever, how can we bring this before a court of law as if to say, well, my kid joined the poor Clares and my other kid joined Krishna and my other kid joined the Moonies. Let's take everybody to court and ask a judge to find out which is true and which is not. I mean, the judge has trouble reading secular law. How could he possibly understand what is the difference between supernatural attraction and so on and so on? So this has been a kind of somber thought, but I hope, and I probably disappointed you because I have no journalistic accounts of horror stories, but you may have your own journalistic account, and I merely say, when you look at young people, think about the pressures and the attraction of these young people and then think of the irresistibility of Jesus Christ and for the love of the young people. Show them Christ, and they'll turn away from the cults. Thank you very much, Dr. Maris. As I anticipated, I'm sure we were all very enthralled with your exposition. I hope to take a party of children away on a camp, summer camp on Thursday, but I hope I'll be able to bring them all back. <laughs> I also had a headmistress who was at school before I was who would be very scornful of this <coughs> subliminal advertising. I remember her idea when we had the school outing to the seaside was to get all the children together. Everybody anticipating the day out with great glee. And she used to say, now if we have any of those children here who are silly enough to be sick on coaches, I don't want them to come with us. They all came and nobody was sick. <laughs> Not even me, the deputy head, and I used to get very rumbled in the tummy, but it worked. But it certainly wasn't subliminal. Now, having given Dr. Maher a little rest, I'm sure some of you would like to add to his talk from our point of view, we do have Moonies here, don't we? I know my own daughters when they were at school. I was severely criticised because I objected to the fact that one of our Moonies was going to come in and talk to the six formers. Fortunately, it was stopped. 
but we were considered to be very obscurantist. But then most of us have had to live with this, haven't we? Is there anybody who would like to start? Yes. How would you describe Opus Dei? Is it a cult? Which one? Opus Dei. Uh, the question is, how would I describe Opus Dei? Is it a cult? I've done some journalistic homework on this group. I say in no way is it a cult. It has certain features. This is the group started by a Brazilian Monsignor, uh, Monsignor Escriva Balaguer or something like that. And uh, I think, pardon me, is it Spanish? Spanish, Spanish. I, yeah, that's right. And uh, I went to his tomb, actually. I went to his tomb two years ago in Rome. Uh, in, in Rome, I think the man was a saint. I, and I think his group is marvelous. The only thing is, there are, few, there are two objections I have to Opus Dei, not one of which has to do with their being cultic. But sometimes uh, they, they do split families up in, in, accidentally. In other words, that uh, Escriva had a kind of chaperone attitude, which in retrospect makes a lot of sense to me. He wants all the women here and all the men there. And sometimes the families aren't together enough, and I don't think that's always the wisest thing. I, I like to work together with families. But that that's, can go either way. That's not so important. Secondly, it seems to me Opus Dei is so worried about personal sanctity, which is the first step, that it does not understand the social philosophy of the church. I've met very few people who understand the social teaching of the church. Hamish Fraser is my teacher. I have been a Catholic all my life. I'm 56, educated totally in Catholic schools, mostly Jesuit. I taught 30 years in a Jesuit university, and it was only when I started reading Hamish Fraser that I understand what it meant that Christ should be king. I did not know that. Now, the Opus Dei people, from what I know, I've read a few books of Escriva. I've read, I've met a few people. I, I lecture for their groups in Columbia University. I have great admiration for their clarity and for their purity. I mean, I've met young men who have vows of celibacy, and they don't keep looking wistfully at the girls. As if to say, I give them up, I give them up, I give them up. They have this sense of they love Christ, and for the sake of Christ, they will be eunuchs. That's a beautiful thing. Uh, they're well-educated, they're, they're low-key, and they have an intense desire to be saints. So I like that. And Escriva, his writings help them. On the other hand, they, they act as if it's enough that you form the individual units. They do not understand that the society is so corrupt that you need a new principle of social order which only Hamish understands so far as I can see, for the crane also. Also, they, they do not criticize enough. I mean, in other words, that it, it's almost as if times are normal, and they're so intent that I be good and you be good, and thank God they're that intent. But I claim maybe they shouldn't do it. Maybe that's their mission, and so let it be. But somebody's got to get up and say there's error in seminaries, I've never heard them say error. I've never heard them talk about error. So that's a weakness. And, but not that they're cults. And if anyone has lost, quote, a son to Opus Dei, you should be happy. I think his freedom has been respected. The other thing, Dr. Mary, is they have this faithfulness for the church's teachings, which is uh, an outstanding part of their mm. uh, 
uh, yes, it, it's a very touching uh, faithfulness to the church's teaching. Yeah. And I suspect that's why the Holy Father is, uh, uh, the Holy Father has given up on the Jesuits. Uh, uh, the Jesuits were once a superbly educated order, fully uh, uh, loyal to the Pope, and 36,000 strong, many of them with PhDs, professors and all that. He tried to reform them and they told him to go to hell. And therefore, he's probably helping Opus Dei. So within 50 years, Opus Dei might be the most powerful group in the church. And I say, God bless them. And also in London, they, they do have these tinterdons for children. And if you get the children when they're young enough, that's doing a wonderful job. They, they have schools. They don't have tinterdons for young children. Kindergarten, yes, yes. yes. Which is, very uh, is that all they have? Do they run high school? Or? I don't know, no. No, I don't know about that. I no. don't know much about them. How strong are they in this country? I don't know much about yeah, them yeah. over here. Not really. They've got a youth centre in London. They've got a place in Manchester. They've got uh, several uh, women's places in, in, in London. And I wouldn't, you said about criticism, I think Office Day work quietly, they probably go to the individual themselves and, and try and convert the individual. Yeah, I agree with that, I agree with that. But sometimes, it seems to me sometimes that, I don't say they're naive, they know where the error is, but it, it, it seems to me that something calls out for a rebuke and they don't give it, but maybe that's not their mission. Yeah. They do apostolate and they work quietly. Yeah. Well, well, all I said, let let them flourish. I mean, they're not caught, so I agree with that. And they also have women's groups, right? Uh, yeah. But the men, they have. I don't understand all these distinctions of numinary and supernumerary and all that. But some of the men are laymen who are free to marry. Others have vows of celibacy. Others are priests. And what a pleasure to meet these people. They're real, real Catholics. Please, question. Yes, please. Um, as someone who's definitely for Opus Day, can I just ask the audience if anyone knows, uh, just recently in the Catholic papers, a Catholic mother in this country was said to be complaining, and she'd formed some worldwide group or something, or was part of it, that her daughter had been brainwashed, that she'd been an outgoing 15-year-old, and now she'd become very secretive and this sort of thing. And on also she was supposed to be that she was practicing mortification, which of course isn't a very good word. I mean, a soul needs time to grow. It's possible that she was just going through a bit of a dark night and perhaps home wasn't the right place. But does anyone know anything about this? Because if it is such a fine organization, it, we, we must know how to defend it on all counts. Yeah. Would anyone know that, uh, the details of that? You see, there would be a case that it even could be that it was imprudent for a 15-year-old to have mortification that the spiritual direction was not so successful there, but that would cast no doubt on the order itself because the order is quite uh, 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 prudent on that. But... Uh, oh, yeah. Cardinal Archbishop Westminster because he said that they were sending around to the primary schools addressing the parents, and he said he, would, he was only speaking for his own diocese, but he didn't want it to go on. No, yes, yes. You, now, and you see, I think that's unfair. I think that from what I know, unless they're quite different here 
than in America. I know the spirit of the movement is absolutely opposed to cults. But, uh, you know, the old Benedictines would take young children and the young children would live with the Benedictines and take final vows. So, and I say the whole thrust of St. Benedict is marvelous. So, so to Opus Dei. But there might have been indiscretions here or there, but in no way is the cult. Yeah, I remember that. Now, was it based on, is the Cardinal's admonition based on this one case? No, no, well, that, that's a very interesting point. Right. But that particular case was, was quite, um, there was a, a one a girl, I think even two of them, that were persuaded or to wear some sort of garter on the lake, which chafed. And the program, the TV program, blew it out of proportion. Now, what they didn't mention is that practically any athlete of 15 or 16-year-old goes through four or five times the pain barrier just doing their normal sport. And that's yeah. uh, just, just to win a crown sure, of laurel or something. Sure, a local yeah. thing. And um, so they blew it out of proportion. And I think that was what prompted the Cardinal to say something. But um, um, the Opus Dei that one meets in this country, the individuals are marvellous examples. And, and you know, they, the, the, the progressives in the church are deadly afraid that Opus Dei will prevail because it's got its own prelature in Rome now. The Pope is obviously friendly, so that they cannot endure the success of Opus Dei. They had a vicious article in the New York Times, which is the gospel in America, uh, having all of these... Uh, uh, these references to the penances and the, and so on, and always acting as if these people were psychologically crippled. And I think that's a good, I'm really glad we, we got that out. That's a very good point. This is a, a sort of peripheral thing. Um, they have a desperate shortage of priests in Norway, and Opus Dei offered to send priests to Norway to help, and the Norwegian bishops refused them, because they were too Latinist. That is very interesting. There's somebody else there, was there? There's someone on that There's side. Yeah. Yes, ladies at the back. Can you just hang on for the mic? Thank you. I wanted to ask something which I hope has a bearing on your subject, and that is, what do you think of faith healing? I have friends who live in constant pain, and I would just like to know... Uh, my, what do you think of faith healing? Yes. healing. Uh, I, uh, th there's a good question about are there natural explanations now there are all kinds of pains all kinds of wounds the uh, faith healers claim that there, there are many distinctions to be made there are sometimes there are mechanisms which if your own spirit is at ease many organic pains are, are, uh, are alleviated so to the extent that uh, because you believe in this or this, it makes your spirit relaxed and things can get uh, better. There's no doubt some, some truth to that and some merit to that. There's also the possibility of a genuine religious miracle. That at Lourdes, there have only been 60 or so certified miracles at Lourdes and probably a couple of hundred uh, non-certified ones. But if you're referring to this circus-like atmosphere in which you get the faith healer, uh, we have them in America. They're even on television now, and everybody comes in, and, and it's a priest, usually, and I think it's a circus. But I, we cannot rule out the supernatural, nor can we rule out this relaxing, which would come from trusting someone else, and which have, would have natural implications, which are good.
So I think that's it. Uh, I, I claim that if I, uh, St. James even says, if anyone is sick among you, let the church pray for him. And I certainly, it's a, it's a work of charity to pray for the sick and pray for a healing, if it be God's will.